You're listening to Members of the Jury, the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice, where the passion, players, and consequences are real. Each episode, we examine current events happening in the system. From the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform, we bring those stories here to you, the members of the jury, because we aren't afraid to take it to the box. What's going on, members of the jury? Happy Freedom Friday, and thank you for tuning in to another fantastic episode. In today's episode, we're going to sit down with a private attorney to talk about what I feel is one of the most important issues in the criminal justice system. Uh, It's one of our constitutional uh, rights and amendments, and quite frankly, I feel that with each year and new more or less conservative justice, if I'm being quite honest, um, we continue to see holes poked into this freedom. Uh, And that freedom that I'm talking about is the Fourth Amendment. Everybody has the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizures. But what we see time and time again, especially in the public defender realm, is that clients are are stopped and contacted by police officers, often on pretextual contexts, so an officer can potentially find out what's more. And oftentimes if they do this is because they violate our client's constitutional rights or that they become savvy enough with evidence and case law on how to maneuver around their set of circumstances to potentially validate the violation, even if it's after the fact. So I'm really excited to break down to uh, this policy for us. By the end of it, we're hopeful that you'll know how to better protect your own Fourth Amendment um, rights. And if you do feel that they're violated, how are the some of the ways that you can contest them? So joining me today is private defense attorney Megal Shaw. Megal, please introduce yourself to the members of the jury. Thanks so much, Lucas. Um, like Lucas said, my name is Megal Shaw. I am a private attorney In Colorado Springs, Colorado, I primarily do criminal and juvenile defense. Uh, I've been doing this for about seven years. Five of those years were with the public defender's office out here in Colorado before I started my firm with my partner. Based on your experience, Megal, what would you say are some, uh, if you don't mind, uh, give us a couple of examples and we can break down each one. You know, what would you say is one of the most common way someone finds themselves um, dealing with a potential Fourth Amendment violation? What What are your most common set of circumstances for that? And again, this goes back to kind of what you were saying, that it's situations where there isn't a warrant, because these are the situations where most of the time if someone is stopped or something is searched without a warrant, which is anything related to a car. That's a car stop, traffic stop, uh, arrest related to something that happened in the car. Uh, so I think that the most common way the Fourth Amendment gets violated is either a traffic stop or a search related to a car. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's why if you pay attention into kind of criminal justice reform communities, you'll see that there's been a big push to eliminate officers' abilities to do what is oftentimes pretextual stops. What is it about a pretextual stop that then leads to, you know, a potential violation of a, of the Fourth Amendment? 
I mean, what it comes down to is the officer essentially just makes a decision that they're going to stop this person or this car, right? And then comes up with a reason later. And what ends up happening a lot of times is the reason is inappropriate, right? So, so the reason and and the reason they the police describe these furtive movements that a person was doing that gives them a lot more leeway to think that there's something in the car that they're hiding something that um, you know to check under the seats that would not obviously be in plain view. So, I think the biggest uh, advice would be try to limit your movements, try to stay as still as possible. And then once the police have contacted you, um, taught explicitly say what movements it is that you're making. If you're reaching into the glove box for your registration and insurance, make that statement. And obviously that also goes into the larger issue of, you know, the police don't think you're doing anything wrong and try to, you know, pull you out of the car or point a gun at you or anything like that. Um, and, and, you know, cause other a lot of other issues but i think furtive movement has led to a lot of issues because they say that and all of the judges just think oh they must be hiding something or they must have a weapon in the car which is why they were making all these movements i I think that's a great point um because especially in light of all of the horrible police shootings that oftentimes start off as what should be traffic stops it plays a double-edged sword. You know, we are able to see that cops are overreacting to situations and armed armed individuals, but at the same, in the same limelight, officers do encounter scary and dangerous situations. And it's definitely been my experience that courts and judges tend to really value officer safety and those thinkings unless officers really engage in egregious activities to support that thing. And so I think that that is an excellent point to say, look, if you are going to make movements, because often most of us do keep our important car informations in various compartments in the car to annotate that and to dictate that as you're doing that, because that will be depicted on the body one camera and can be super helpful in court. You know, Mega, why don't you pick off off on that and and explain how, you know, even in the moment, you know, your rights might be violated, but ensuring that that type of behavior is actually done and then shown on the body one camera, how that could lead to a, a recourse. Yeah. So, so when we're talking about dictating those things, right? So let's say that, you know, you are saying you are reaching in your glove box or in your center console for your license and registration. What can what can happen is if you're not saying that, and let's say you move too quickly, guess what that's going to that, that's gonna lead to is exactly what Lucas was just talking about, which is them pulling you out of the car, because they're not sure if you have a gun in there or a knife in there or something else that can hurt them. Um, obviously for you, it's best to follow whatever the direction is that the officers are saying, but if you have said that and the officer still does it, and then they later go into say, well, we weren't okay with him certain, you know, opening a glove box in his car. So we did it for him. And then they found drugs or a gun or something like that. That then leads to charges. If you've dictated it then, uh, and it's on the body cam then your attorney later, once the case has started, can say, hey, look, that search of the glove box was illegal. It was against in violation of the Fourth Amendment. 
because whatever this cop was thinking wasn't accurate. And you know how we know it's accurate? Because my client was saying exactly what they were doing instead of us just assuming that that's what you could have done or trying to make that argument. If we have you saying that, if that's on the body cam or a dash cam or something along those lines, then we have actual concrete things to point to instead of just trying to make the argument and then it's our word against the cop's word. And most of the times the judge is going to rule in the favor of the cop in those situations. Couldn't agree more. And that's why, again, I'm a huge fan of every officer having a mandate, basically, that they have to have body-worn cameras. And, you know, if you happen to live in a jurisdiction that doesn't have that policy, I would definitely speak to a local politician or a, a representative to try to get that into the budget because it holds the police accountable. It justifies men's and, and motions and, and what are, and I think it, in most public defender offices or even each individual attorney, I think as it relates to the Fourth Amendment, based on their practice and experience, they, they end up honing in on a certain type of one of the exceptions to the Fourth Amendment because there are so many, just by the luck of the deal of the type of cases that they get. And mine in particular is super related to the automobile um, exception, and it's the inventory search. Because I, I always feel that when officers kind of get to this fork in the road with like, okay, there's a traffic stop, but they think there's some sketchiness to it. Um, and oftentimes, whether or not you tow a car is discretionary, that they'll lean to utilize their discretion to tow it solely for the purpose of being able to search the car. Um, and specifically in California, there's case law against that. You know, it's it's saying you, you cannot use the inventory search as a ruse to ultimately get to the unlawful discovery of the evidence. And, you know, um, it's funny when you find those niches because then you see them over and over again and you just, you know, you run the motions to see if you've had success and, you know, I've had my fair share of ones where I totally feel like that's been the case. But going back to the police report compared to the body one camera, unless you kind of have them align the way you really need them to, you're stuck with the officer's point of view. Similar experience in your motions? Um, yeah, and I'm glad actually that you brought up an inventory search because about a year or so ago, I started seeing a lot of those here. And I'm it's fantastic that you have case law out in California about uh, you can't use the inventory search as kind of a ruse to get into the car. I don't think there's a case in card, at least that I found um, that exists here. But what I have figured out is that each of the law enforcement agencies here have a policy on when to and not to tow a car. So we've had to kind of go through each of those policies and if they're just towing cars randomly out of nowhere, especially if they're like in a parking lot or something like that, um, then then it's been great for us, uh, for our arguments to say this was a ruse to try to get into the car because they didn't really have a reason to do it otherwise. And, and you know, that actually leads me to some, you know, uh, going back to the earlier comment is like, you give these officers an inch, they will take a mile, especially as it relates to, you know, them trying to do their jobs and fight bad guys and, and get people off the streets. And so, you know, if you're going to drive your car, make sure you have your proof of insurance, make sure that your tags are registered, make sure that you have the right stickers on. 
all of these things relate to, you know, not trying to give the pretextual stops. But one of the things too, is you always want to keep the conversation on the reason that you got pulled over. Um, that's one of the things that we see oftentimes in body worn cameras where, you know, they'll, you'll, the conversation will start as to why they pulled them over, but then it will lead to, well, where are you going? Where are you coming from? What's this, what that, or the other, Uh, what's the best way for individuals who are in police contact to, be respectful because you obviously don't want to escalate a situation because then cops often go on power trips. So what's a respectful way to, to keep the conversation to the narrow capacity of the potential traffic stop um, without exposing too much for the officer to think now he has probable cause for anything else? Yeah, so I think it, it comes down to, I guess, part of it is, right, you initially, so obviously when they first come up to you, they'll ask kind of the basic info, your name, license, registration, all that stuff. Uh, but once it's actually getting to the substance or kind of past that formality, you want to try to get, you want to be the ask the, to ask the question. Because a lot of times they won't start out with the reason uh, unless it's like pretty obvious about why they're stopping. They'll try to get that background about, oh, can you tell me where you're coming from? Can you tell me, you know, why you were going this fast? Are you trying to get somewhere super quickly or something like that? It's perfectly fine to say, hey, officer respectfully can you just tell me what what exactly it is that you're pulling me up for a lot of times what police officers will also do is then ask you well why don't you know why i'm pulling you over why don't you tell me why i'm pulling you over to try to get them try to figure out oh is there something else i should be on the lookout for are you nervous about something other than whatever it is that they pulled you over for uh don't fall for it just say hey i'm not sure you're the one that pulled me over why don't you tell me Um, there is going to be a point at which you will kind of understand that this, this stop is coming to an end, whatever the reason for the stop, it is coming to an end. And the officer will try to continue that conversation. They are not legally obligated to let you know when they're done with whatever it is that they're stopping you for. In fact, there's a Supreme court case that very specifically says it, they are not obligated to tell you when they're done with the stop. They can then ask you follow-up questions including ask you to search your car for whatever reason they want to. Um, Don't fall for it. Ask respectfully, hey, officer, are we done here? Am I free to go? Um, Because if you are not free to go, then you are now seized. You are are detained. Uh, That's also important for a lot of different other reasons that we could probably do five other podcasts on. Um, But if they say, yeah, we're done, then you are, in fact, free to go. You have you have to answer no other questions. That's an excellent point, too, right? Because <laughs> I don't want to say that it ultimately is a violation, but <laughs> uh, so, so many times we see people have their fourth waiver, fourth amendment protections erased because they consent. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, first and foremost, you know, I think that that's where we honestly should have started with. If you want to ensure that your fourth uh, yes. amendment uh, is protected, first and foremost, make sure they don't have a warrant and secondarily don't consent. Uh, because if they have either of those things, a warrant or consent, no matter what unlawful activity they do, it's it's now warranted. So um, that that was a good little nugget that I think that that reminded me of because so many times because people want to be respectful and comply with the officer's questions and positions, they, 
they consent and you know um you don't have to do that even if you have unlawful items and contrabands in your possessions you you have that fourth amendment protection and, and that just doesn't apply to cars right we we have seen people consent to search of their houses the search of their person search of their clothes search of their cars it applies to literally everything if you give them consent to search whatever it is that they want to search there's not really going to be anything else we can do about it later. Yeah, that's, so that's a great advice. You know, before we move on to another example, um, it could be really helpful because I, I I know there's the, obviously the case law on the subject is really interesting. You know, what goes into determining whether or not a person is, quote unquote, being seized or, you know, detained for purposes of knowing, okay, we haven't consented, but now are we meeting that first prong of a fourth waiver analysis? Um, yeah, so uh, what I look at is essentially, has there been any kind of a stop, right? So there are levels of stop that exist within the law. There is what is called the consensual stop where a police officer just walks up to you and says, hey, can I talk to you without any reason? And they're allowed to do that. And you are allowed to walk away in that situation. Um, there is a second kind of the middle ground of reasonable articulous suspicion where police officers don't necessarily know that you've committed a crime, but they have an articulable suspicion more than a hunch, essentially, that they can actually point to and say, talk about um, that you either have, are, or are about to commit some form of crime. They can stop you. And then the last one is an actual full-on detention through a probable cause. They believe that they that you have committed a crime. You are not allowed to leave. But in any of those stops, what it comes down to is, have they stopped your movement in some way? Or would you as the client feel that you are not free to just walk away from them? That's really what it comes down to for me. Yeah, I think that's when I, I think that's the best layman explanation of it, you know, when we're having those conversations about cases with clients about potential fourth waiver, fourth amendment violations, it's, you know, would a normal person feel free to leave? And that's why it's so important to ask officers during contacts, like, are you free to leave or not? Because if they say no, you have your answer. Um, But I think uh, the other important thing to know is that there can also just be a show of authority where officers might try to elude that you're free to go. But if there's one of you and five officers and three patrol cars and they're all kind of surrounding you, you know, I don't think most people would feel that they're free to go in there. And to your other point about the articulable suspicion, I think that's also a potential great question that you can, again, respectfully ask officers. You know, if you're ever on uh, TikTok, there's plenty of First Amendment auditor videos out there where these individuals go and film in the public, often around police departments and they get contacted by the officers and, you know, they're trying to detain them and, and identify them. And, and he always asks, you know, what's your articulable suspicion? And they say, well, you're being suspicious. And like that, that's not that's not the standard. That's not the test. And so, again, we're not necessarily giving you these tidbits and these nuggets to litigate with the officers when you're in the moment. But it's certain things that if done correctly and ideally are preserved 
most likely on body worn camera, they can have huge benefits down the line when fighting it, you know? So if you ask an officer that question and on the body worn camera, he's not actually able to describe an articulable suspicion that is the bare minimum of a standard for them to even escalate it to probable cause, that is going to be beneficial to your case. Um, so I thought that, that that's some great advice. Um, so let's move away a little bit from the automobiles. Um, obviously, um, those, I think the automobile exception is probably the, the biggest area of exceptions when it comes to Fourth Amendment waivers. Um, what is another limited area where you've seen individuals have their Fourth Amendment violated when they're not in a car? So I think this is one of those niche things for me that kind of happened to me. It hasn't happened to me in a while, but it happened. I got a lot of cases related to this early in my career, which is the Terry Frisk. So uh, Terry stop and frisk uh, are are the ideas that the police officers, one, are allowed to stop you. So we talked about kind of pulling you out of the car um, earlier on. But really, in any situation, they're allowed to stop you if they have reasonable articulable suspicion. Um, but the Terry Frisk is the idea that they're also allowed to pat you down. Where the where my issue or a lot of the problems, a lot of the violations of the Fourth Amendment come in is that police have just felt that anytime they stop you, they're allowed to frisk you without any other reason. But what the loss very specifically says is they're only allowed to frisk you if they have reasonable articulous suspicion that you are armed and dangerous. They have to believe that there is some weapon involved uh, and that you are potentially about to use them. That is the only way they get to use the Terry Frisk. Yeah, and I think it's it, those are interesting because, you know, would you say there's a certain demographic of individuals that find themselves Terry Frisked more often than others? Oh, absolutely. I mean, anytime uh, anyone's in a low-income uh, community, you know, what they in their uh, reports describe as the high crime areas. Obviously, people of color get um, frisked more often than not. And and when we were talking about kind of those uh, precursory reasons that the police officers kind of stop people, it's anyone that they think could have drugs, right? And that's really what it comes down to is low-income people, people of color, but really what they're looking for are the drugs. And, and that's a fantastic point because, and I was actually just having this conversation with a friend of mine about I, I can't imagine people honestly think that poor people somehow do drugs at a higher rate than wealthy people. Like that's just one on its face, like drugs cost money and poor people don't necessarily have money. So it, it, it's nonsense. But why so many homeless people find themselves incarcerated because of drug use is because it's their exposures to the cops. Cops aren't out there patrolling affluent neighborhoods, individuals who are in the affluent neighborhoods don't quote unquote look like drug users. So they're not being contacted. I mean, example that I had to use is like, literally look at how many, you know, Hollywood celebrities we hear about who have self admitted themselves to going to a residential treatment program. And somehow, and, and I have no issues with that. Great for them. Good for them. Kudos to them. That same type of treatment and rehabilitation should be awarded to the same types of users who aren't as the same privileged position. So I think that that is a great example as to the disparities that exist in the criminal justice system and why, you know, public defenders and private defense attorneys advocate so much for police reforming because there is this misconception of data that 
poor people and people of color somehow have this inherent risk of crime that affluent, i.e. white people don't have. And that's just not really what the metrics show, right? Absolutely. And and I mean, when you think about it, right, it, it just kind of goes back to war on drugs is how it started. You know, we hear even now about the difference between cocaine versus crack cocaine, all of that kind of stuff. But what it comes down to is, one, as you were just saying, the police officers aren't just patrolling the affluent, the, the suburbs, you know, things like that. They're patrolling the homeless camps. They're patrolling the low-income communities. And it also comes down to there's less places to hide, right, when that happens. If you're if you're well off, then, yeah, you can be in your home. You can be in your garage. You can be in your car. You are hidden. You are protected. Uh, not to mention you don't have police, you know, 100 police patrolling your neighborhood all the time. But when you're not well off, you are walking places. You're on your bike, you are not in a home if you're if you're transient. Um, so you are far more likely to have police contact because they're patrolling your community more. But you're also not kind of in those safe environments that you would be if you are better off. And the same things I would imagine go hold true for Terry stops. Make sure that they don't have a warrant. Don't give them consent to search. Limit your answers to their questions and make sure you're free to go. Um, those are the best scenarios that is going to ensure that your fourth amendment is intact and and protected you know so we've talked about people in cars we've talked about people kind of just walking is there a third and final category where you see yourself finding often borderline or even you know amounting to fourth amendment violations of in types of scenarios i think a lot of ones involving canine units and this kind of goes back to the car because that's often where they come in. But, you know, search dogs are used in houses. They're used at airports, uh, things along those lines. And I think the the classic example of that, the example we learn about in law school, is that extended stop with the cars. Police stop you for a standard violation or at a security checkpoint or something like that. They have a dog available that's there. They, you know, have the dog go around your car, but that extends the stop. Just them searching with the dog extends the stop more than what just giving you a ticket for whatever your speeding ticket was, for example, would do it. Um, so that's the classic example. But there's a secondary example of searches that have at least come up in Colorado a lot um, ever since marijuana became legal is whether the dog searches are appropriate based on the dog's background, training, etc. Well, that's an interesting point. So because I know in California, when marijuana became legalized, there was some case law that came out that said the odor alone no longer gives officers probable cause to do, a, you know, an interior search of the car for quote unquote extra contraband, i.e. more weed. Is Colorado following suit with that or are officers still able to use the aspect of the quote unquote burnt smell of marijuana to further perpetuate a, a search? No, Colorado has also has a similar um, case to that. Uh, but I mean, they're still trying to use it. Right. But what came about because uh, marijuana is now legal and because of that case is there were a lot of dogs previously that were trained to smell marijuana. And 
if that dog was trained to sm- smell marijuana, you're never going to untrain them to smell it. Um, so the litigation that's still ongoing in a lot of different situations is if a dog was previously trained to smell marijuana and the smell of marijuana alone is not enough to establish probable cause, how can you differentiate or how can you tell if it that now that marijuana is legal, what the dog is smelling is marijuana or a different drug? Because the dog's trigger signal to the handlers is going to be the same. It's uh, contraband, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's super interesting. Ah, man, I could see. Yeah, that that presents a lot of issues because, I mean, that could essentially be the pretext to a lot of searches of cars, backpacks and persons for what would be just a lawful possession of, of marijuana. Um, have you had a situation where there was marijuana found plus maybe like some other type of maybe like a weapon that then you're, you know, I'm assuming if there's other drugs found that that eliminates somewhat of of the remedy. But if it's like marijuana and maybe like a small weapon or something like that, that would be more of a, a fruitful situation because obviously the dog isn't smelling the weapon, but it would be smelling the lawful marijuana. Um, actually, I've I've had cases where other drugs were found, too, that I, I personally haven't, but I've heard other people have won successfully. Because marijuana is at least relatively prevalent within Colorado, um, there's an argument that any point a dog can smell marijuana, right? And because in their in their trigger or in their code, whatever their signage is, the dog signage to their handler, they can't differentiate between this is a sign for marijuana versus this is a sign for other drugs. Even if they find other drugs, you can make the argument that the search in itself was illegal because we have no idea whether the search was triggered by a marijuana smell. Um, so what had that has led to a lot is they are now retraining a lot of the marijuana sniffing dogs to do non-drug type sniffing stuff. That's super fascinating. And, you know, from a policy standpoint, I've always kind of had the issue with the canine exception basically just being the only analysis is, was it un, unduly time? Like, does it take a long time to facilitate the dog smelling the whatever? That's been the only real basis to determine whether or not it was an unlawful use or not. I would really like it see to see it scaled back or um, and you know more restrictions put in place where like the officer would actually have to have you know probable cause to have the the dog sniff just like they would have to have probable cause to utilize any other tools or metal detectors or tests that they have. Um, you know, so I've always disagreed with that policy. Uh, standard that you know if you're out in public and the dog it's a specialized police tool like normal dogs aren't doing that and and so like that's i've always had an issue with that and let me let me pose that question to you you know where where policy wise would you like to see a change um to help give back the protection that the fourth amendment intended to give its citizens um, as a whole or just related to the canine? No, I think as a whole, if there's any like, you know, anything specific aside from the canines. Well, God, there's so much the 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 Fourth Amendment has so many exceptions in it now that I honestly don't even know where to necessarily start. I think um, I think 
the home is pretty well protected. I think there are some very clear guidelines in the home. So I don't necessarily think there will be anything related to the home. I think phones and really the clouds are the new the new frontier, I suppose, in the Fourth Amendment where the new law is going to be made. Phones have been here for a while. There's sufficient, I guess, case law for phones. But with the smartphones and the cloud becoming a thing, I, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. But I think for me, it still comes back to cars. I, I think you have to step back on the cars. I don't think the the reason the automobile exception came about and the rationale was it was because cars are so mobile and there's a, a diminished expectation of privacy within cars. I'm not really sure where the idea of a diminished expectation of privacy within cars comes in. Uh, because I disagree with that specifically. So I think that is where I would like to see the policy change is the cars just because they're just so normal part of life now. Um, and especially now with the increase of people living in RVs, people renovating buses to kind of travel around. Ever since COVID happened, more and more people are kind of living on wheels where now cars are homes. And obviously that also applies for um, transient people who don't necessarily have, you know, brick and mortar homes to go to. A lot of times they're living in their cars. So where do you draw the line in those situations between cars and houses and everything that I've seen and experienced so far, everyone's still treating them as cars and not houses for Fourth Amendment purposes. So I think the cars are the the policy part where I would like to see the change, where I would like to see it pulled back. I think treat them more like houses, treat them more, um, treat them like you have more expectation of privacy in your car. Because in all honesty, everyone, whether you actually live in your car or not, you have so many things that happening in your car that are personal, that are um, only specific to you. Uh, and it, there's not really commonality between a lot of people. Everyone's car looks different based on how they live their life and how they commute or not commute, et cetera, that I think cars would, I, would be the policy change that I would kind of be focused on. I think I couldn't actually agree with you wholeheartedly, especially because, you know, cars is property and the Fourth Amendment specifically is supposed to protect your property. Um, you know, even if you take your, you know, your cell phone out in public, it, it doesn't have the same exceptions. So I actually think that that that's that is a great place to start. And, you know, when when the founders wrote the Fourth Amendment, I don't they obviously didn't have that type of distinction thought or and you know and and you you don't consent to your fourth fourth amendment protections just because you have to get into a car and drive somewhere especially in the year 2022 where you know everybody has a car everybody uses that transportation you know i could see how maybe if you were on government public transportation you maybe some of those exceptions apply but i i, I agree I, I think that that i would love to see some of the very loosey-goosey exceptions that apply to the automobile be restricted. You know, I would really like to see, you know, more kind of traffic tickets resolved just via, like, kind of cameras and mail citations, you know, and, and I've had a lot of conversations with people about that. And the only example that they can give to kind of push back is, well, what about people who are DUI? And, and to myself, I say, okay, like, 
in my limited experience, it's it's very clear when someone is like an officer is I'm pulling someone over for the purposes of suspecting them being a DUI versus I'm pulling them over for a mechanical issue or a, a speeding. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I, so I, I would love to see that um, because that would eliminate protectual stops or at least reduce the number of protectual stops that you have. Um, and, and would think that that would give uh, more protections back to the Fourth Amendment. Megal, it's been a fantastic episode. I'm so glad to have uh, met you and to have this conversation. I think that you've given our audience some great nuggets um, and things to look for and how to be prepared uh, with police encounters to ensure that they're doing everything that they can to ensure that they uh, have the most maximum protections under the Fourth Amendment. Um, so we really appreciate you giving your your time and your and your insights. Uh, you know, the last question we ask on every episode to our guest is, what is the significance of taking matters to the box? I mean, this episode has been about protecting your rights. And I think that's that in itself is the significant. There are 80 percent of rights associated with any criminal case are trial rights. They are rights that only come in if you choose to go to a trial. And that includes rights like the Fourth Amendment when you're talking about motions, hearings and trying to suppress the issue. If you take a plea, guess what? We're not going to get to litigate that in most of the cases because most of the time the plea is happening before we have those hearings. So I think when it comes down to it, it's about protecting your rights. Uh, it's about giving your attorney the opportunity to fight for you uh, and fight for your constitutional rights. Because if you don't take it to the box, if you're not going to trial, then there's just no opportunity. You are literally throwing all of those rights in the trash. Uh, and if there's a situation where your attorney is advising you that, hey, this is worth a fight, then I promise you, if your criminal defense attorney is telling you it's worth a fight, that means they are raring to go. They are ready with that sword and shield and they are ready to go into battle uh, because most of the time they're going to tell you kind of what's what and they're going to tell you if it's something's a losing issue or something along those lines. But if they're actually telling you, this is something we should fight about. That means they are pumped about it. They are ready to go and they're ready to, to take it down as much as possible. Here, here. I think that that was so beautifully said. And I think this actually, this fourth amendment issue is such a great example of how matters can be taken to the box, both in a courtroom and outside of the courtroom. As we talked about, we can take your matter to the box by motion to suppress and uh, highlight the fruit of the poisonous trees and hopefully win cases that way. But we can also take this matter to the box to our local representatives and our politicians to scale back loosey-goosey policies that e eradicate the Fourth Amendment protections or to implement policies that, again, highlight the protection that that Fourth Amendment was intended to do. So um, again, we just appreciate you so much for coming on members of the jury podcast and reaching out with us and connecting. You know, we'd love to connect with you again in the future to have another policy or trial break down. Thanks again. Well, members of the jury, that's our show, and I rest my case. Be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter to the box. If you're a fan of the show, go ahead and subscribe. You can also find us on social media at members of the jury if you want to be a guest or have any feedback be sure to email us at lhursty at members of the jury pod.com
information in this podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws and to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.